0: Following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Well, welcome everyone. Um, thanks for the privilege of being back here with you. Um, last Saturday was Valentine's Day, wasn't it? Valentine's Day? You were looking up at me blankly. (laughs) I was struck, actually, um, by how many people seem to be celebrating Valentine's Day. Everyone I know seemed to be going out for a special meal and leaving the kids behind or, you know, writing love notes or something like that. Nothing along those lines happened in my family, um, I'm ashamed to admit. Um, But uh, I I was struck by the commercialisation of an event like Valentine's Day in New Zealand. Um, it seemed to me at least, that last Saturday, lots and lots of New Zealanders were celebrating their love, celebrating their marriages, celebrating their romances, um, But not everyone, of course. Um, on, on Tuesday night, I had a conversation with a lady who, um, with her husband, used to come to the church that I once pastored. They were with us for a number of years, have a young son. And she said to me, I haven't seen her for years. She said to me on, on Tuesday night, have you heard the news? He's left me. After 19 years, he decides that he wants to be with someone else. And before I put the phone down, she said something I don't think I'll forget in a hurry. She said, you know, I thought I'd found my soulmate. Not everyone was celebrating Valentine's Day last Saturday. I guess most of us have stories like that that we could tell. We know of situations where vows have been broken and hearts have been broken, homes have been broken, lives have been broken. And I think that's why the book of Hosea in the Bible is such an incredible and timeless book. It's a story that we can all relate to because it's a story about love, And it's a story about pain. It's a story about a vow broken, a heart broken, a home broken, a life broken. Um, And I think, actually, it's a story that tends to get a little ignored in church. You certainly don't see it in the Sunday School curriculum that often, the story of Hosea. And I haven't heard it preached that often in in church. But I'd like us to spend some time reflecting on the story again, because I think if we're honest, whoever we are, and whatever our experience of love and pain, we all need to hear the story again and again and again. So let's look at it. Um, if you've got a Bible, uh, you might want to open it. I thought I'd do something a little different this morning, and rather than, rather than read through the text and then just make our way through verse by verse or however um, it could be done, I thought we could perhaps... Just listen to the story. Just experience the story. Let's, let's imagine the story for ourselves, shall we? Um, it's set in 750 BC. so a long time ago in the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdoms of Judah and Israel were divided. Now, let's, let's imagine how this story would play out if Peter Jackson got hold of it. If he got hold of the script, right? And he thought, I could make a great blockbuster out of this one. What would he do for a 21st century contemporary audience like, like, like us? Well, the opening scene, we would see um, a charismatic, articulate, poetically gifted young preacher called Hosea, wooing a young girl called Goma, a young lady. And um, he takes her out for coffee, the opening shots. Then he takes her out to the movies. And they hold hands in the dark cinema. And then the next scene, perhaps they're walking in the hills off the background of Samaria. And they're getting to know each other. And they're hearing each other's stories. And he is hearing something of her checkered history. The wild parties when she was at university. The multiple broken relationships that have followed her through life. But... He decides to marry her. Partly because he's been told to marry her. In uh, chapter 1, verse 2, right at the start of the story, God says to this young prophet, Hosea, who's possibly only in his teenage years, 18, 19, I want you to marry a promiscuous woman, Goma. And I want you to have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, This land is guilty of unfaithfulness towards me. So he marries her, but I imagine that on on their wedding night, thrilled with the the romance of of his wedding and this new relationship, young Hosea looked across at his beautiful young bride and thought to himself, your past has been fractured by, by foolishness and pain. I know that. But if God's called us together, our future will be filled with faithfulness. He was wrong. Because it turns out that from the beginning, Goma doesn't share his deep religious convictions, his values. She's frustrated by all the evenings that he spends out preaching. She's a bit embarrassed by all the the sermons that he does preach when she hears them. And what she hears about her husband, these uncompromising, fundamentalist messages that he's got about Israel, and Israel's unfaithfulness to, to God, she, i mean, he's a religious nutcase, and, and, and she's embarrassed by that. But I wonder if the biggest issue for her was simply the fact that, that a minister's salary is really quite miserable, let's be honest, he hasn't paid me. And she just she's angered by the fact that they have to live in this dingy little rental apartment. And she has to drive this rusty old Toyota Corolla to work. <laughs> Sorry. I've got a Toyota Corolla out there in the car. <laughs> and, and, and so one day, one day, when the CEO at work showers more, attention on her than he probably should. She likes it. She feels a thrill. And she encourages it. And within months, Hosea knows that something's not right. I mean, there are evenings when he gets up off the couch, does his teeth, goes to bed, and lies there wondering when she's going to come home. There are nights when she doesn't come home. And I suspect, I suspect that, that Hosea prayed to God during those days, during those nights, and said, God, please save my marriage. Please bring her back. And then one day it seems that he's answered the prayer. It seems that God has, has given Hosea what he wants more than anything else because Gomer falls pregnant. And she gives birth to a baby, a son. And, 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 and Hosea thinks, this little baby is going to bring our lives together. We're going to be a family, and everything will be okay again. But God says to, uh, to Hosea, in, in verse 4 of chapter 1, I want you to call him Jezreel. Jezreel, a beautiful name, actually, and the name of a beautiful city in, in in a fertile valley between Samaria and Galilee. But it's a city that that forever in the public mind will be associated with violence and destruction because it was in Jezreel, you may recall, when the idolatrous dynasty of King Ahab met its inevitable demise in a bloody coup. It was in Jezreel where Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, the Baal-worshipping unfaithful Queen Jezebel was hurled out of a window in her palace and landed on the streets below where the dogs ate up her bones. It was in Jezreel during this bloodthirsty massacre when Ahab's 70 young sons had their heads lopped off, placed in baskets, and that dynasty was removed. So, for Hosea to call his son Jezreel is a little bit like, I don't know, a Jewish man today calling his son Auschwitz or Isis. Auschwitz? Why would you call your son Auschwitz? But every time, every time he called out to his son across the street or at the school gates, Jezreel! Jezreel! It was a shocking reminder to all of those that were listening that there was a time when God dealt with the idolatry in Israel, the unfaithfulness in Israel, and he would do it again. Israel would be destroyed. It would lose its kingdom. Then, a number of months later, Gomer falls pregnant again. This time it's a little girl. And God says to Hosea, I want you to call her Lo ruhama, Lo ruhama, which means not loved, no compassion, literally. Ruhama meant compassion. Compassion, ruhama, that was the word the prophets had used to describe God's care for his people, his covenant people, the people that he had entered into a special relationship with. It's a word that's connected to the Hebrew word for womb. God's compassion for his people is as all-encompassing and nurturing as, as a, a pregnant woman with a baby in her womb. And here, Hosea is calling his child no compassion. Do you see what he's saying? He's communicating, he's broadcasting to Israel that God has said, I will no longer Show compassion to my people. I will let them suffer droughts. I will let them be invaded because they have been unfaithful to me. And then after little Loruhama is weaned, there's one more child. Goma gives birth one more time to a little, a little boy. And God said in verse nine, call him Loami, which means not mine, not my people. And this is the most hideous name of them all. Because when God entered into that that wonderful, sacred love relationship with the people of Israel, when he entered into a covenant with them, having rescued them from slavery in Egypt and led them into the wilderness and joined himself with them forever, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here he is now saying, you're not my people. I mean, you're not acting like my people. We don't have a marriage. The relationship has unraveled. Those three names, do you see how they tell a story? They tell Israel's story, but they also, at a personal level, tell Gomer's story, her unfaithfulness, because when Hosea announces the name of his third child, Louruhama, not mine, I mean he is publicly stating, I think with bitterness and anger and pain, that his worst suspicions have been realized. That these children born into his home are not his children. They're someone else's children. because the marriage is in tatters. And so I don't think he should have been surprised when in the story, the sword ultimately fell. I mean, eventually, one day, Goma walks out. She moves out to move in with her boss in his swanky penthouse apartment in town. And you can just see Hosea, can't you? I mean, he, he opens the email, and it's short and to the point. I don't love you anymore. Goodbye. And then he, he cooks dinner for the kids. They need to be fed. And you can see him cooking the stir fry, and it's being seasoned with the salty tears that he's crying. You can see him bundling the kids into bed, tucking them in and telling them with measured words that mummy's not coming home. You can see Hosea, can't you? Just watching each one of those little kids, as big salty tears run down their little faces. You can see him scooping them up in his arms and holding them tight as their little chests heave with sobs of pain. And he just wants to grab the pieces of their broken hearts and put them back together again. I suspect as we hear a story like this that we're tempted to, to look down at Gomer, aren't we? I mean, how could she do that? How could she reject and wound her husband like that? I suspect many of her, her fellow Israelites thought the same, actually. But the interesting thing is, of course, that Gomer's story is Israel's story, that in this story, God is is communicating to his people, to Israel, and saying to them, this is what you have done. We don't have time to read all of chapter two, but you'll see there if you've got your Bibles open that it's a poem. The format of the the script is different. It's a poem in which God says that what Gomer has done to Hosea, Israel has done to him. They've, they've, they've hooked up with another god, the god Baal. He was one of the local Canaanite deities who was regarded as being the god of, of, of the weather, the god of rain, the god of harvests. And when you think about it, this is 750 BC. This is an agrarian society, right? So you can imagine that, that the, the god Baal who could guarantee good harvests, fertile land, bumper crops, was a God that you might be attracted to. Especially if, like the Israelites, you've forgotten that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God who rescued you in slavery, planted you in the promised land, and has given you every good thing that you enjoy. And so, the people of Israel, God says in that poem, They've chased after their lovers. They've chased after the baals. They've chased after rich crops and wealth and pleasure and prosperity, thinking that that will satisfy them and make them secure and happy. Not knowing, of course, that, that only God can ever satisfy their deepest needs. Well, when you think about it, just as an aside... I mean, we do exactly the same thing, don't we? I mean, why do I long for a larger salary? Why do I want a better house, a bigger house? I mean, why do some of us kill ourselves trying to get those better grades at university or school? Or those tighter abs at the gym? Why am I so desperate to please some people? I need to see a counselor about that. Why are some of us so desperate to win our sports games or to watch certain websites? You know, every time we take something really good, something like a a career or material possessions or a relationship or sport or sex, every time we take something good and turn it into something ultimate, something that we just absolutely must have and will do anything to have because we're absolutely convinced that it will give us the security or the significance or the satisfaction that only God can provide. We're committing idolatry. We're worshipping the Baals. We're performing spiritual adultery like Israel, like Goma. And it kills relationships. It just... It destroys lives. That's, that's what it does. I mean, look at the story. Look at how it plays out. If you turn across to chapter 3, you see there that, that Goma's path has trended downwards ever since she left Hosea. Her lover, it appears, didn't really love her. And she's passed, it would seem, maybe through several men until eventually she's sold into slavery. Idolatry and slaves. And in the ancient world, slavery was a massive institution. I mean, every big city like Samaria, where Hosea is ministering, would have had a market where men and women were bought and sold like cattle. And historians tell us that in some of those markets, when women were sold, they were stripped of their clothes and made to stand naked in front of the gazing, bidding crowd. I suspect Goma has ended up in a place like this. And when her name is called out or her number is called out and she's dragged up to the slave block, some in the crowd actually recognize that standing on the edge is Hosea. <laughs> He's probably here to see who get what she deserves, they think. But then the bidding starts. Someone shouts out, and this is where, I'm sorry, I can't translate this into a Peter Jackson 21st century Movie. Someone shouts out, I'll give her five, sil- five pieces of silver. And then Hosea says, 10. There's a pause. Someone says, 15. 15 pieces of silver. Hosea says, 15 pieces of silver and 200 kilograms of barley. He's got no more silver. That's all he's got. But it's enough. The gavel falls, 15 pieces of silver, a homer and a lithic of barley, salt. And as as Hosea walks through the crowd to buy his wife, and he clothes her, covers her nakedness, he turns to her and says, and you see this in verse 3 of chapter 3, You're to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. In other words, he's saying, I've redeemed you. Come home. Live with me. Be my wife, and I will be your husband. Be faithful to me. But I won't force you. I won't force myself on you. What I will promise you is that even if you are unfaithful, I will remain faithful. It's incredible, isn't it? How can anyone do that? How does Hosea show such incredible, costly love towards his wife, towards Gomer? Well, I think the Bible would tell us that the answer is in verse one of chapter three, where the reason Hosea goes to Gomer in part is because, again, God has sent him. And God says, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man. The word there, loved, sexually loved. She is is with another man and is an adulteress. Love her, love her, As the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. So, the reason Hosea is able to show this kind of love towards Gomer, his wife, is because he has has tasted an even greater love. And you get a glimpse of it here. And um, I mean, let's just read, I think, two of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Two of those poem verses in chapter two where we get a glimpse of how God loves his people, even though they so deeply hurt and wound him. Verse 19 of chapter 2. This is amazing. After saying to the people of Israel that they will bear the consequences of their idolatry and they will lose their kingdom, they will be removed from the land, he says to them, but there will come a day when, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you I will give to you in this marriage ceremony as the bride price, righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will at last acknowledge the Lord. And then in verse 23, he says, there will come this day when I will plant you for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who were called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you will say, you are my God. Do You see what God's saying? He's saying, in other words, yes, Israel, you have been unfaithful, but I will be faithful. Yes, Israel, you will bear the consequences of your idolatry. You are destroying yourself and you will lose your kingdom, but I will remain faithful to my promises. I will enter a new covenant with you, a covenant that will never end, that can never unravel, that will never be broken. And of course, we who live on this side of the cross, we know what he's talking about, don't we? I mean, we know all about that covenant. We just celebrated it. We do it every week with communion here. And we know also why that covenant is eternal, don't we? Why it can never be broken. Because the God of the covenant, God himself, became a human so that he could fulfill the covenant. He could obey its terms perfectly on our behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, he trusts the Father on the cross. He obeys the Father to the very end, perfectly for us. And so in him, we are perfect and acceptable to God. In him, we've been reconciled to God forever. And it doesn't depend on us. I think if we were to boil the story of Hosea down to the central message, it would be that. That God loves you, not because of what you do, but in spite of what you do. God loves you, not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. Or more more correctly, God loves you because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he has bound you to the Father in love forever. And God will never let go. You can refuse him. You can damn yourself to hell. But his love for you will never end. And Hosea in this story through this story, that he so painfully embodied says, receive it. Own it. It's yours. But that leads into a second implication from the story. If we're to tease out another couple of ideas, the second one would be this, that I think like Hosea, God's prophet, we are being called to embody. This kind of sacrificial covenant love in our relationships. I mean, what does the Bible say in the New Testament? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We are to embody His love in our relationships. Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you go love others, and the world will know that you are my disciples. There was a study done a little while ago um, at the Berkeley University in California. And what they did was it was called Habits of the Heart. They looked at, at how our understanding or attitude towards love has changed in recent decades in the West. And they discovered that there are some views of love which are they called traditional views. And according to, to that view of love, People that hold that view of love see love as being about self-denial and commitment and self-giving. And what they've discovered, these sociologists, is that our view of love has changed, and there's this new modern, they call it, therapeutic attitude towards love, which which has taken root deeply in the West. And according to that approach, love is not about self-denial and self-giving and commitment, It's about self-expression, self-fulfillment, taking. It's more about our feelings than our will. That's true, isn't it? That's happened, hasn't it? And I think when you think about evangelism, one of the very best evangelistic strategies in our world today, where we are living in a famine of faithfulness, and people's lives and marriages and families are broken all around us, even our lives. One of the best evangelistic strategies we can ever do is to embody covenant love, God's sacrificial, costly love in our marriages, our relationships, our friendships. But one more, one more implication from the story And and I think this is probably an implication for those of us who might be feeling today, where is God? You know, where is He? I can't find Him. I can't feel Him. How do I get to know Him? Where is He? I think Hosea would say to us, He's right here. In your confusion, in your pain, He's here. You think you've been searching for Him but he has been pursuing you, waiting for you. Um, Haddon Robinson tells us a great story, a true story, I believe, about a young woman, a young man, rather, um, who lived in Chicago. And he went down to the southern states of the USA, down to Kentucky, where he met and wooed and won the heart of a beautiful young lady. And he took her back to Chicago, where they were married. And for the first three years of their life, married life. It was bliss. It was just beautiful. But then one day, she became sick. She had a seizure, and in that seizure, she lost her sanity. I mean, she she became demented, and she would scream at the top of her voice, blood-curdling yells. The neighbors complained, and so this young businessman with his wife moved out of central Chicago to the western suburbs, where he built a house and resolved that he would be devoted to her and take care of her and nurture her back to health. But then the, the, the family doctor said, why don't, you, why don't you try something else? Why don't you head, just take her for a trip back down to Kentucky, back to her home, back down to the place that is filled with memories for her? And that might jolt something. That might That might restore her reason. Who knows? So he takes her down to the old family home. And they hold hands and walk through the old house, the walls covered with memories. They walk down into the garden, and they they amble along the the riverside where the first violets uh, are in full bloom. But after several days, nothing. So... Defeated, discouraged, this young man takes his wife back to Chicago, and as they're driving into Chicago, getting close to their house, he looks over and sees that she's, found, she's fallen fast asleep. I mean, this is the first good, deep sleep she's had for weeks. And so when he gets into the driveway, he eases her out and carries her into the house and lays her down on the bed, and covers her with a duvet, and then sits down on a chair next to her, just watches her, just looks at her through the night, until the first rays of sunlight fall on her face, and she stirs, and she wakes up and she looks at him, and says, I seem to have been on a very long journey, where have you been? And he says, I've been here all along, with you, waiting for you. If you say, Where is God this morning? Hosea would say, He's here with you. He's been pursuing you all these years, and He just longs for you to fall into His arms. And enjoy his love. A love that will not let you go. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.